0: Today I'm preaching on temperance. I mean, it's Mardi Gras, right? Fat Tuesday's coming. And I've been dealing with the four virtues, and I wanted to deal with justice last week because of the Super Bowl and the emphasis we had on human trafficking. And this week I thought, I need to deal with temperance. Lent is going to start on Wednesday. And I hope that uh, you will take an inventory of your life. Consider maybe some of the things that need to change in you. Some of the things where you know you're out of alignment with the will of God. Maybe it has to do with habits. Often it has to do with eating. Maybe it has to do with your own spiritual disciplines. So as Lent comes for these 40 days, I hope you will implement... Spiritual disciplines in your life maybe need to be there. Folks say in 21 days, you establish a habit. If you can do it during Lent, you can make it a permanent part of your spiritual walk, whether it is reading the Scripture, praying daily, or other exercises that you know would honor God. So let's think about that, okay? And let's think about it in the context of temperance, discipline, self-control, Yes, abstinence, moderation, these are all part of temperance, the fourth of the cardinal virtues. When I was in Israel the first time, the only time I really felt scared was at the gates of the Garden of Gethsemane when our Jewish guide got into a fierce and angry confrontation with an Arab caretaker. They just lost it. They were both so angry. And I thought, this is a strange place in which to have an out-of-control conflict, seen as it was in Gethsemane, where our Lord Jesus surrendered to the Father's will, submitted himself to the plan of God, And exercise the kind of self-control that is commended for every human being on the planet. Everybody does and can practice temperance. But we who are believers in Jesus practice self-control in a very special way. We practice it as part of the lordship of Christ in our lives. Realizing as the song we just sang said, we have rebel hearts. And we need God's help in conquering the appetites that seek to devour us, that must be brought under control for us to be healthy people and healthy believers. So we come at temperance from the point of view of the filling of the Holy Spirit, the control of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, this is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Paul chronicles in Galatians chapter 5, the Spirit produces in us love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. So God's up to this in your life. Look, you can't win without self-control. These virtues are important for you to succeed in whatever you're seeking to do. And self-control is a central virtue for everyone who wants to excel. To excel, you must bend your desires to the goal you have in mind. You must submit them to the Lordship of Christ. Paul said, I bring my body into subjection and I make it my slave. It's like he's talking to his body, these desires we have within us. You don't win without it. He said, I want to grab the prize. I want to achieve the highest goal for my life. And so I bring my body into subjection and I make it my slave. Knowing that if I don't, there is this danger that after having preached to others, I myself will be disqualified. That's what he says, First Corinthians 9. So this is a central virtue. We all got to practice it. Now, I want to go to Gethsemane with you here on the eve of Lent. Chapter 26 of Matthew, if you have your Bible, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. And I'm going to start reading with 36, verse 36. Here, sandwiched between the Last Supper, the beginning of communion, And the Lord's Supper, the washing of the disciples' feet in the upper room, all that transpired in that upper room, sandwiched between that and his arrest and crucifixion, on the night he was betrayed, he had a prayer meeting. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there, And pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may wit your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them. And went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And we have the betrayal of the Lord by his disciple Judas. Okay. There are many things in the Garden of Gethsemane to rehearse, to think about, to meditate upon. But I'm going to pull out just a few that I think are helpful in developing the life of temperance and self-control. Now, I pray about this, and I ask God to forgive me for my lack of self-control. You may be this way too, okay? So here's some ideas, some things that we see in the life of Jesus that may help you. Number one, intimate friendship. I'm telling you, make some friends. Do you have any friends? Do you have friends with whom you share your heart? Jesus has the crowd. What's he need with friends? John the Beloved says, he would not entrust himself to that crowd. He knew what was in man. Jesus has the 12. It says about the 12 that Jesus chose them so that they could be with him. Those 12 are very special. The crowd, they all want something from Jesus. Jesus. But Jesus wants those 12. It's a reverse kind of desire. The crowd longing, oh, Jesus, please help me, please help me. Sounds like us a lot. We got needs. Come on, pay attention to me. And it's okay. He helped the crowd. But wouldn't you like to be in that moment when Jesus says your name? And calls you in close and says, I want you to be with me. He had 12 that were his close friends. And then he had three that were his dearest friends. Peter, James, and John. When he knew that he was about to be transfigured before them on the mount. He asked Peter, James and John to come up here and witness his glory. When he was about to walk into that hostile crowd where that young lady died and be laughed to scorn. He took Peter, James and John. He said, you guys come with me. And they went through that jeering crowd that thought that girl was dead and laughed him to scorn and were with him when he raised her from the dead. And on the night in which he was betrayed, when sorrow came over his soul like a tide, he called three people to come with him and pray. You need these three in your life. You need somebody with whom you pray, with whom you are transparent, to whom you tell the travail of your soul. So if you are overwhelmed to the point of dying, you feel like sorrow has captured your heart, they know. The first discipline in developing temperance, is developing some intimate friendships, some people with whom you make your journey. I have spoken before about the anonymity of the metropolitan setting, where we come in from small-town USA and end up in the city where nobody knows my name. And how often that is a precarious place for a believer and how it is important for you not just to be in a pew but to be in a face-to-face relationship with other people who are seeking to walk faithfully for Christ, just like you. People with whom you are honest. People who know you. People with whom you are transparent. All right? It's going to cost you to develop these friendships if you feel like you're an island and nobody knows the real you. It takes some time. It takes commitment. It takes the resources of your life to be a real friend and have a real friend. But Jesus did it, and you must do it too. John Donne said, No man is an island as strong as you are You are stronger, tied in with three friends. You can break one twig easily, the proverb says, but you put four of them together and you can't break them. The devil will seek to isolate you, put you out there all on your own. Try to break and bruise every important relationship in your life so he's got you alone. Because when you are alone and you feel alone, you are vulnerable. I believe this is the great test of the Savior's heart in Gethsemane. I sang, like many of you, the song that says of Gethsemane, He had no tears for His own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Remember that song? Ever since I was a boy, I wondered about it. I pictured Jesus in the garden, the agony of soul, the prayer that he prayed and the words that he said to his father. Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. And I think the songwriter got it wrong. I think he had tears for his own grief and his own sorrow. And he was overwhelmed. And folks, people have backed away from the humanity of Jesus since the beginning. We are uncomfortable with his full humanity. The first heresy in the church was not that Jesus wasn't divine, it said he wasn't a real man. I think in Gethsemane, you have your pioneer, your example, your Lord. Struggling in sorrow and grief with the assignment he has received from the Father. Like sometimes we struggle. And being an example for us as a man who triumphed in the most difficult time in his life. And he did so in part through those friends that cared about him. They were on his mind when he was in Sorrow and trouble. Intimate friendship, your first step towards self control. Second, honest prayer. No use you trying to disguise the truth when you talk to God. Amen? If you're having trouble, Being honest in prayer, I want you to pray out loud. Get in the closet where it's just you and God, nobody else can hear. And tell him about the real you, the real stuff, the stuff that's buried and you don't want to say out loud. You're afraid and embarrassed to really bear your soul before the Father. Because you know how ugly sometimes you are inside. and honest prayer is really the only kind of prayer there is. We can't fool God. We are as transparent as the cleanest glass before God. He knows exactly what's in our mind, what's in our heart, what we struggle with in our inner life. He knows about it all. All the stumbles, all the problems, he knows it all. But we need to speak it in the place of prayer. Honest prayer is the second ingredient of a Christian self-control who comes before the Lord and says, this is me and this is what I struggle with. This is where I cannot seem to gain the victory, God. This is where I fall. This is my besetting sin. This is the one that tangles me up, God. Here it is. And honest with God, I lay it before him. And as I vocalize it, I realize it myself. I'm honest with me. Oh, the excuses we make about the ugliest things in our lives. But when you just speak it and tell God what it is, there's a liberation to that for you. God already knows, but for you to confess it, it's so important to say it out loud. To voice it before God and hear it yourself. God, here I am and this is me. And when we confess it, say, Lord, this is us. He is faithful and just and will What? Forgive. I love the word forgive, don't you? How are we ever going to achieve real temperance and self-control if we do not internalize the forgiveness of God? If we refuse God's forgiveness and we never enjoy it, if we're always carrying around our sack of guilt and shame, And always self-condemning. If that's how we live, if we never measure up to our own expectations and we're never free from the burden that we bear, how will we ever exercise temperance and self-control? Part of the a key part. Of you being honest with God and learning self-control in your life is to be able to confess your sin and then freely receive His forgiveness and walk away from the honest place of prayer knowing that you are sparkling clean of soul. Like the strongest soap in the world has washed your heart and there's not a speck on you. You ever experienced that? Do you know what it's like to step out of the place of prayer? And the the slate is absolutely clean. I mean, it's like you walk on air. And the power there is in the acknowledgement of your cleansing and you appropriating all the benefits of forgiveness that Jesus bought for you with his own blood when he died on the cross. There's nothing like it. It lifts you up. It empowers you. It straightens your backbone. It puts a new spring in your step to know that you are forgiven. You're not perfect. You probably tell yourself that too much. Start telling God all about your imperfections. Ask him to cleanse you and then tell yourself, I am forgiven. I am forgiven. Part of the problem with self-control is we hear the accuser whispering in our ear, you lousy, dirty thing. How can you even aspire to be a child of God? How can you think that you're saved? Look at the mess in your life. You are awful. You are filthy. You are dirty. You will never measure up. God could never use you. And the accuser of the brethren is the devil who's trying to bring you down day by day, every day. So you've got to live in forgiveness. You got to live in the Lord's cleansing. You got to say the accuser, I am forgiven through what God has bought for me on the cross of Christ and I will not live in self-condemnation. It's the key to get there. Honest prayer. Jesus said, My Father. My Father. It may be that you need to change the way you address God in your mind. Maybe you need to shift from the Almighty God, the Judge of all the earth, or whatever term you may be using, and start saying, Father, Father. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Isn't it? Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father. Father. When you pray, say, Father. Why? Because you need that parent-child relationship with God. You need to know he is the one who loves you. Jesus teaches us, look, you come to God in prayer, you're honest in prayer. You petition him for what you need. Even lost people know how to give good gifts to their children who ask them. So if you ask the Father for a fish, he's not going to give you a serpent. He ask, you ask him for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. How much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Honest prayer. Thank you, God, all that I need. The resources of heaven given to me, placed at my disposal in the place of prayer. My Father, Jesus prayed as he taught us to pray. Jesus told the Father how he was feeling. Is it possible for this cup to pass from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's the third thing. Complete surrender. Complete surrender. Surrender. This is not a new temptation for Jesus. This is the old one. This is the one that came up over and over again throughout his ministry. Isn't there another way to do this? Can't I be another kind of Savior, another kind of Messiah? When the devil came to him in the wilderness, he said, Hey, why don't you be the bread king? You be the bread king. Turn the stones to bread. Everybody's going to worship you why don't you do this miraculous thing throw yourself down from the temple the angels will catch you man you'll be star number one look if you just fall down and worship me all the kingdoms of the earth I'll give you that isn't that what you want it's the alternative way the alternative path for Jesus to go the disciples don't get it they don't want him to suffer and die and when he says he's going to when they approach Caesarea Philippi Peter takes him aside and begins to beat him up verbally. Don't you talk like that. I don't ever want to hear that again out of you. Suffering and dying, that's not for you. You're the Messiah. You're the chosen one. And Jesus said what? Get behind me, Satan. That's where Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I know your face. I know you. I've heard you before. That's not you, Peter. You're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about the things of man. This is the temptation Jesus always faced. Isn't there another way? Other than complete and full surrender to the will of God, can't I do something else? Is there a plan B? Could I take something that's not quite up here, but maybe kind of in the middle? That'll be your temptation too. When the Lordship of Christ demands all of you and you get to work and you get to school, and all of a sudden your whole life is shaped by your devotion to the Lord Jesus. This is your defining characteristic. Every word you speak, every deed you do, all the values and relationships of your life are being reigned in and, and controlled by this one thing, your relationship to Christ. And somewhere inside of you is going to come and say, do you really need to be this narrow?" I mean, is this really how you ought to spend your, plant, your time on the planet? Don't you think this is kind of confining? What about plan B? Isn't there another way to do this? The call of Christ is lay it all down. You can't even follow me unless you're willing to take up your cross every day. You got to put it all down. Complete surrender is the key to your temperance tomorrow morning. Jesus surrenders to the will of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, it's not what I want, but what you want. And it is the example for every believer who confesses Jesus as Lord. This is our touchstone. This is our guide. This is our call. This is what it means to follow. That the lordship of Christ is total in my life. And I seek to bow to his pleasure in everything. Complete surrender. You know, anything that's not surrendered isn't surrender at all. You realize this, right? I mean, there are areas of our life that it's easy to give over to God. We think He's got that right. But this one spot, this one relationship, this place here, God, I I can't do it. And that is the one place where you've got to bow. You've got to kneel. You've got to give it over. It stands like a roadblock to the rest of your life. Not my will, but thine be done. Applied to the thing that comes to your mind most readily and most quickly in the moment of worship. When you think about who you need to be, who God's calling you to be, what he's calling you to do, that thing that rises up, it's got to be given to God. It's got to be surrendered. Jesus came to this moment struggling with this one thing. Do I lay my life down? He has the power to call 10,000 angels. I mean, imagine... The ranks in heaven, standing in attention, stretching from the throne room all the way as far as the eye could see. They're all waiting, all ready for him to just say, Come on down. And the whole world goes up in a puff of smoke. Because that's who he is. They come by the cross and say, Yeah, yeah, you're the son of God. This is the son of God. What a joke. Yeah, really, the Son of God cut down from that cross, and he could have. It is complete surrender. He gives his cheek to Judas. He gives his hands to the guard. He gives his back to the whip. He gives his hands and feet to the nails. Because this is the Father's will done in the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of god jesus gives it all up it's what he calls of you as well and then we have immediate obedience immediate obedience just like that He leaves the garden. He says, here's come the betrayer. We're not going the other way. We're not going sideways. We're not heading into the olive trees. We're going to meet him. This is the father's assignment. This is what he wants. This is his plan. This is the cup the father's given me. We're going to drink it right now. And it's not minutes before they have him on the ground. If you're planning to obey later, That is planned disobedience. Every day you spend fighting what you know God wants you to do is another day in which you've got to repent of your attitude and actions. Another day you lose in the opportunity to represent Jesus as Lord on this planet. Why spend another day in rebellion, another minute hanging on to the stuff that's eating your heart out anyway? Turn it loose. Give it up. Immediate obedience. It's the only way to obey. Do it now. That's what Jesus did. He got it from the place of prayer and went immediately to the cross. This is what self-control amounts to. It's you bringing together your friends. It's you in honest prayer bearing your heart before God telling them how it really is. It's you surrendering completely to the will of God in the place of prayer. And it's you getting up from your knees and immediately obeying what you know to do. So what is God's will for you? You may say to me, oh, I've been praying for God to show me his will. I've been praying for God. I need to know God's will. I don't know what God's will is, whether I should stay in this job or move. Let me ask you this. Is there anything about the will of God in your life that you are refusing? When you look at your life, is there anything in your life where you say, I'm out of his will there. I know that. Why would you expect him to declare his will to you over here when you're fighting him every day right here? The will of God will open up for you when you do immediately what you know God wants. Let's bow together. And as we bow together, let's just pray the Lord, the prayer that Jesus prayed. Lord, not my will, but thine be done. God, your will be done in every heart in this room. Thank you that your will is perfect, that it is our highest calling. Thank you that what you want is beautiful and good and true. Lord, I pray that you will enable us to say no to what we know is wrong and say yes to what we know is right. Help us to hear your voice and do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.